Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. I will now uh, read today's scripture, and then we will dive in, and I will read today's scripture uh, specifically. It will be coming from Isaiah 52, uh, and then Matthew 2, and then a portion of Matthew 27. Let me read this for us. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd, uh, who will shepherd my people, Israel. Chapter 27. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they wept. Uh, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today, we are starting a new series um, called Thy Kingdom Come. Sermon on the Mount, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And something that we uh, want to encourage you with is, as we do with every sermon series, uh, we want to always try to give you additional resources for those that might be interested in uh, doing some personal devotional study through the series. And if you go to reh.myc slash current series, uh, you will find all the details on um, some resources for this particular series. Uh, but we're excited to be jumping into this. And uh, let me frame how we're going to uh, consider uh, this series this way. And over the years, uh, I've had the privilege of doing a lot of travel. Uh, and if you know, if you've gotten to do the same, you know that when you enter another region of the country, or even more so when you go to a different country, there are customs and values and cultural expectations that are inevitably different than your hometown or your homeland. Uh, I had the privilege um, uh, over the years to travel to a lot of different places. Actually, fun fact, about me, the only continent that I've not been on is Antarctica. I don't know that I will ever actually round out all of those, but, um, but of course, as, as I've traveled over the years, uh, I've very much seen how the cultural norms of these different places are very evident. Years ago, uh, my wife and I, in particular, we had spent some uh, time in uh, the Congo, and I remember a couple of really interesting cultural experiences uh, that we had there uh, in our time there. One. Uh, though this is the case in, in many places, uh, there it was actually really indecent and even overtly sexual to show your calves. 
Now, if you know me, uh, you know I have really big calves. Um, my wife tells me that my legs are the reason why she married me. Um, but, uh, but because of the cultural expectation, though it was intensely hot and incredibly humid, I wore pants the whole time we were there. That was different for me. Uh, I remember also uh, we were working with a man who was a very large, just very kind of stereotypical manly man, you know, just uh, whatever that conjures up for you, just imagine, very large guy, massive meaty hands, uh, and he was, you know, I, I don't speak French, and so he was trying to get me to go somewhere with him, and so it was going to be too difficult for him to explain, so he grabbed my hand, and we walked through town as he took me to the place that he wanted to go, again, very different for me. It was a very different kind of cultural thing. But even though it was very different for me, these were, of course, the norms of this culture that we were in. The cultural expectations and even moral standards uh, can be quite different when we step into a new context, a new land, or begin to uh, interact with a new people. And so I start there because today, again, we're going to be starting this new series looking at the kingdom of God. For the next 21 weeks or so, we're going to be looking at uh, how the kingdom of God is quite different than the kingdoms from which we come. We're going to be stepping into new lands with new expectations, maybe even new moral standards than from the, uh, that different than the kingdoms from which we have all come. And that the coming of the kingdom is actually the thrust of the gospel. That the message of Christianity is actually one of the coming of God's kingdom. It's what in Matthew 4, Jesus is said to proclaim, that he comes to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And so let me give you a quick bird's eye view of what we'll do over the next several weeks, and then a little bit about, of course, what we'll do today. But for the next couple of weeks, I want to lay some groundwork for the kingdom of God by looking at several passages uh, in the gospel, according to Matthew, which we just heard read. And then in subsequent weeks, the subsequent 19, 20 weeks or so, we're going to begin to take a look at a, a comprehensive look at the teachings of the kingdom, probably the most comprehensive of the uh, teachings on the kingdom, which is found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we will look at the values of the kingdom of God by looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew and then all the subsequent practical life application that Jesus gives to us in Matthew's five, Matthew 5 through 7. This is what the overall series uh, will look like. And what we're going to see is that much like in our previous series that we're coming out of with the fruit of the Spirit, the Sermon on the Mount actually shows us the markers of one in whom the Spirit is working, one whom God has welcomed into his kingdom. Similarly, much like one who will identify with a people or a culture or a nation by reflecting the characteristics and the values of that culture or nation, when we're part of the kingdom of God, our life begins to reflect the characteristics and the values and the culture, so to speak, of the kingdom of God. Now next week we'll take a look at what the kingdom of God actually is, but before we do that today, what I want to do is I want to consider, not to jump right to the, the kingdom itself, but I want to take a look at what actually makes the kingdom special. Specifically, what makes the kingdom of God special is the king of that kingdom, Jesus. So let's do that by considering who Jesus is 
in the landscape of understanding the kingdom of God by considering Jesus as a messenger, Jesus as a king, and then Jesus as a revolutionary. So first, Jesus as a messenger. Uh, Again, before we get into the weeds of what the kingdom of God is and the message of that kingdom, I think we need to start with the fact that Jesus was a messenger of a very specific message. Because there are differing conceptions of who Jesus is and what he did and what he taught. What I mean by that is every world religion claims Jesus to be of significance of, in some, of some kind. Someone worth listening to. Someone from whom we can learn. You know, contemporary uh, Judaism believes that Jesus was a wise uh, and respected rabbi and even a, a miracle worker. Uh, Islam teaches that though uh, Muhammad was the final and most significant prophet, Jesus was a revered prophet of God, also believing him to be a miracle worker. Uh, For many Hindus in the world, Jesus was uh, divine, but not uniquely divine, because there are, of course, many gods. But rather, Jesus was a perfect example of self-realization, which uh, in Hindu theology is the concept of dharma. In Buddhism... And in many uh, New Age movements, Jesus, again, was a very wise teacher who taught things like loving one's neighbor or kindness and forgiveness. And though they largely don't have much to say about the claims of Jesus as far as who he was, they do focus in on his teachings of morality and ethics, ethics found in places like the Sermon on the Mount. And so I say that because it's important for us just to note, first, that you cannot escape the fact that by all accounts, Jesus really is most important person that has ever existed. Meaning, you are going to have a really hard time finding people in the world today that don't hold Jesus to some kind of great esteem. Every world religion, and even many uh, atheists would say, yes, Jesus is significant. There is much to learn from Jesus. So I would say this, the denial of Jesus and his importance or his relevance to one's life is at least ignorant And at worst, arrogance, knowing that the vast majority of people on the planet think otherwise. Even if their conceptions of Jesus are different than the Christian one, they do hold him to a high esteem. Now, I draw this out for a reason, because everyone agrees, including Christians, everyone agrees that Jesus was a prophet, and that he was a teacher, and he was a messenger. However, where we begin to differ is, of course, significant, It's when you start to consider the message that he came to proclaim, that Christians in particular believe he came to proclaim. Uh, For some, the message of Jesus was one of morality. So when they come to places like the Sermon on the Mount, they see him as a wise teacher. But Jesus' main message is not one of morality. Jesus' main message is not about how to make us moral, ethical people, but rather... Jesus' main message was about the coming of a new kingdom, a new king, a new people. I mean, let's look at our our passages uh, for a moment. You know, I started uh, today with what may have felt like a little bit of a random uh, passage from Isaiah 52. But in that passage, the context of uh, Isaiah and what he's speaking of is that Isaiah is prophetically looking ahead to uh, the captivity of Israel and Babylon and where Israel would be destroyed. But in Isaiah 52, he begins to describe the day when messengers would come 
to proclaim to Israel, who was in captivity, proclaim to them that they were to be released from captivity. It was a day when they were reminded, not just that they were going to be able to return home, but also rather that they were reminded of God's favor still being with them, even though they were still in captivity. And as our passage says, they're specifically reminded that God still reigns. And he goes on to say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring that good news. Now that whole idea of how beautiful are the feet, of course he's not actually talking about feet, but the message that those feet bring, a message of good news. Now, I started in Isaiah 52 because it gives us some context. If you fast forward into the New Testament, in Romans 10, when talking about preaching Jesus, Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually quotes this verse in Isaiah 52. And the word he uses for good news is the same word that we use for the word gospel, euangelion. And so as we've said, Jesus has come to proclaim the gospel, the good news, but he's come to proclaim the good news of the coming of the kingdom. Much like the messenger in Isaiah 52, Jesus comes to proclaim a message that God reigns, that God still reigns, and that his favor and salvation still remain for his people. This is why, for Christians, other conceptions of Jesus do not suffice. Right? While all other faiths believe Jesus to be some kind of messenger, come to preach morality and ethical teaching, Christianity takes a completely different view of Jesus' message. Jesus' message is one of good news, as he proclaims peace, who brings good tidings for the, the claims of salvation, and declares that God reigns, that God still reigns. Now what we're going to see next week is when, we, when we're looking at God's kingdom, his rule, we're going to see that God's kingdom is actually incredibly at odds with our conceptions of the kingdom. And so we'll get there, but don't miss that Jesus came to proclaim primarily good news of God's reign. Okay. But not only is Jesus a messenger, Jesus is also a king. Okay. Jesus... Uh, one cannot understand Jesus and who he is uh, or read the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry without recognizing that unlike messengers of old who spoke of uh, God's reign, Jesus did not speak of God's kingship, but rather Jesus begins to claim kingship of himself. That's an important distinction. Jesus did not just speak of kingship, but rather he claimed kingship. And I gave you two passages here from Matthew to show the extent to which that idea was uh, the, very much the reality of Jesus' main thrust of ministry. In the first passage, we have the, the birth of Jesus. We see there in Matthew 2. This passage uh, we know well. It's one of the main passages, of course, that we read during the Christmas season. But look at the language that the wise men in particular use when they go to King Herod, when they're looking for Jesus. Right, so in verse 3, they say, come, uh, they, they, they come looking for Jesus, and they say, we're looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. So from the very beginning, the moment of his birth, Jesus is understood in some way to be a king. But lest one think, much like Herod, who's in that passage, likely did, uh, that the Magi were mistaken about Jesus being a king, 
Uh, look at Matthew 27, which is the second passage that I have there, which is the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay, so 33 some odd years later, we have uh, this being described in Matthew 27, that when Jesus is brought before Pilate, and he's ultimately sentenced to death, the custom at the time was to write above the person who's being crucified the crime that put them on the cross. And the rationale was if um, the Roman Empire could put above those being crucified what their crime was, it might be a deterrent from others uh, doing the same kind of thing. And so, of course, above Jesus, you have his crime. And verse 37 of chapter 27 tells us why Jesus was on the cross. This was his crime. It says that above his head, they placed the written charge against him that this is Jesus, King of the Jews. So I draw this out because from the very beginning to the very end of this narrative, it is clear that Jesus is being proclaimed as a king. The conceptions of Jesus, this conception of Jesus ought to be a very confronting one for us. You know, in recent years, as I've thought about my own relationship to the Lord, I found myself using the term Lord a lot when I talk about Jesus. Uh, and the reason being, of course, you know, it's a, a, biblical, it's a biblical term for Jesus, but Lord tends to connote something that pushes against our natural inclinations. And what I mean by that is, if Jesus is king, if he is Lord, then I am then subject to him. He's, he's not just a prophet who tells me about God. He is not just a wise man that I should emulate. He's not just a teacher of moral and ethical uh, philosophy. Uh, he is all of those things, but he didn't hang on the cross proclaiming to be a prophet or a wise man or a teacher. He, hang, he hung on the cross because he claimed to be a king. And a Christian is someone who sees Jesus not as a teacher, not as a prophet, not as just a wise man, but as a king and as a lord over their life. And if he is anything else, you lose Christianity. You lose the message of Christianity. You lose the message that Jesus came to proclaim. If Jesus is anything else but a king, we lose Jesus. And this is where, I think, for many, the tension comes. Because there are some, even here, that don't want to think about the implications of Jesus as a king over our lives. It's much easier to relegate him to an example of morality or compassion or empathy or love, all of which he is. But it's easier to make him this abstraction that really has nothing to do with my everyday life because if he is a king, that means he has claim and authority over me. And let me maybe give a little bit more complexity to that. I don't have time to get into this fully, but consider again the words of the Magi in, in Matthew 2. They said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose uh, and have come to do what? To worship him. Right? That's no small detail, that they came to worship him. If these wise men recognize Jesus as king of the Jews, they should also recognize exactly what it is that they're claiming in a statement like that, that they have come to worship him. You know, it's been said that first century Jewish people 
under the occupation of the pagan Roman Empire, would be the last group of people on the planet to worship a human. The Roman pagans saw their kings as some kind of god and worshipped their kings as gods. But the Jewish people would never believe that a king, a human king, a baby no less, would be worthy of worship. Unless, of course, their god that they believed in took on flesh and became human. And that's exactly what happens here. It's exactly why they are drawn to worshiping him because, as John tells us, the word became flesh, that God dwells among us in Jesus. So that means, then, that Jesus is not just a messenger of God's reign. He's not just part of the reign uh, of God um, uh, as a king, but rather Jesus is the God who reigns, that he is God and king. Unless we assume that kingship is something that we choose to be under, know that that is also not the case. And what I mean by that is that we can acknowledge his kingship and experience the benefits of being under his kingship, or we can ignore his kingship and remove ourselves from the benefits of his kingship, but our belief in him being king does nothing to his actual authority as king. And as Philippians 2 tells us, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is king. He is king overall, whether we acknowledge him to be or not. And this is the tension, is it not, for many of us when we think about Jesus in this way. Because to see Jesus as this kind of king inevitably is going to lead to our submission to him as king. And I know that for many, our conceptions of submission are often connected to real experiences or understandings of submission that have led to abuse and uh, exploitation, right? The patterns of the world's submission will time and time again lead us to that exact thing. When we think about submission in this world, we can almost guarantee that at some point you're going to find people who are uh, under the power of someone else who are being abused and exploited. That's the nature of the kingdoms of this world, that those who hold power and hold authority often use that power and authority by lording it over others. Which makes me think, of course, of that adage that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that is absolutely true. But if Jesus is a messenger about God's rule, and he is the embodiment of that rule, he is king, then we need to consider what kind of king he is. Because, see, if, if Jesus is the kind of king who's going to use his power for abuse and exploitation, we have very good reason to not trust him and to actually reject his kingship and lordship over our lives. But what if Jesus is not that kind of king? What if Jesus is the kind of king that we would desire to be under? Whose, whose submission to a kind of king that isn't about uh, abuse or exploitation, but rather a king who seeks to liberate us. What kind of king would that look like? Well, that's what I want to look at finally, that yes, Jesus is a king, but he's unlike a king that we've ever seen or experienced from the kingdoms in this world. And as a result of that, Jesus is also a revolutionary. 
explain to you what I mean by that because I know that sounds maybe a little bit strange. But in 2 Corinthians 4, it says that there's a, there's a God of this age who seeks to blind our minds uh, so that we cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, it tells us that the rulers of this age uh, were blind to the wisdom of God, which is why they crucified Jesus. All that meaning that the world is full of kings and kingdoms that use power and authority for their own good at the expense of others, including their subjects. And the more power one is given, of course, it often correlates to the abuse of that power. So what do we do then? When we have a king, we're talking about Jesus as a king who truly does hold all power in the most literal kind of sense. He is the most powerful. If he is God, of course, he holds the most power. Well, of course, that kind of king, one who holds that kind of power, could be feared, and rightfully so. Unless, of course, that king, with all that authority, uses that authority not in corrupting ways, but in humble, gentle, loving ways. What if this king uses his power to overthrow the kingdoms of this world that seek to exploit and to abuse? And as a result, instead ushers in a kingdom of freedom and liberation and healing and unspeakable joy. What might that king need to do to show that kind of power in that way? What might that king need to do to crush the power of the abusive kingdoms of this world and prove his character and commitment to you? Well, to do so, that king would need to come and subvert the ways of earthly, worldly, sin-infected kingdoms. He would need to come as a revolutionary king. And that's exactly what Jesus is. That is exactly what Jesus does. Look at, again, our, our passage. As a king with matchless power, we'd expect this king to come showing the glory of his might. But instead, Jesus the king, he doesn't come wielding power. But instead, as we see there in Matthew 2, he comes as a helpless, fragile, vulnerable baby. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, the, the Son of God, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. See, Jesus is a revolutionary king who uses his power not for himself, but for the good of those that he loves. And so he comes in vulnerability that he might be approachable and near to you and to me. Philippians 2, though, also goes on and says that he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is what we're seeing. Now, in Matthew 27, not only does Jesus come as a vulnerable, vulnerable baby, but Jesus on the cross dies the death of a criminal, his only crime being this vulnerable, compassionate king who is now on the cross laying down his life again for those he loves. The cross that we deserve to bear as a result of, result of our rejection of the lordship of God over us, Jesus takes that upon himself. 
And in doing so, he subverts and revolutionizes our concepts of power by being a different kind of king. But finally, that's not the only thing that he does. Because the cross takes him to the grave to prove the extent to which he identifies with us. But the resurrection of Jesus proves something else. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he is exactly who he says he is. The resurrection of Jesus is what crushes the power of the kingdoms that oppress and exploit. The resurrection of Jesus shows the extent to which he truly does hold absolute power as king. And though Jesus came as a baby to show his nearness and his gentleness, he's also a king of great power. Passages like Revelation 19 remind us of his power. One day when he returns, he does not come as a vulnerable baby. Revelation 19 paints a picture of Jesus coming with power, with eyes blazing like fire, to strike down the nations, to strike down the exploitative kingdoms of this world. He will come again to put an end to all injustice, all sin, all oppressive kingdoms. And so we have this king who is vulnerable, who lays down his life. We also have this king who is powerful and mighty, able to crush the broken kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll see. Jesus himself makes no sense without us seeing Jesus as not only a messenger coming to proclaim the reign of God, but also Jesus as a king who embodies that reign, but also Jesus as a revolutionary who overthrows the kingdoms of this world in order that, we might, that he might usher in this new kingdom. So my friends, in the coming weeks, we're going to consider a lot about the kingdom of God, the character of it, the expectations of it. It'll be 20 weeks of good stuff. But none of it's going to matter if we don't first see Jesus as king. All the things that Jesus calls us to do, all the good moral teaching that Jesus is going to put in front of us throughout the Sermon on the Mount, none of it ultimately matters if we don't see him as king. A king that has ushered in a new kind of kingdom and has proved himself to be the kind of king we need. A a king of gentleness and compassion, but one also of power and might. And so my challenge to you would be this. Is do you see Jesus as king over your life? To whom we are called to submit and to trust and to obey. I think if we're all honest, there are numerous areas of our life, of course, where we've not fully submitted to him. And so I pray that by God's spirit, those kinds of things are made clear. But do we also not only just see him that we ought to be fearing, but also do we see him as one who loves us with a kind of love that we cannot comprehend? I don't know about you, but that's the kind of king I can submit to. That's the kind of king I can trust. My prayer would be that we would all do so. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for, for the work of your Son, our King, our Lord Jesus. Thank you that he's not a king that comes to lord power over us, to abuse or to exploit, but that he's a king who uses his power for the good of those he loves, for the flourishing of those he loves. So God, would you help us trust Jesus as king? 
Would you help us to look upon the cross and see a Savior willing to lay down his life? Would you help us to look at the resurrection and see a king who is powerful and mighty, who crushes sin and death? Would you help us to look ahead to that king who will return to crush the oppressive kingdoms of this world? Help us to, to know that thy kingdom is a kingdom that is not marked by sin and death and brokenness, but it's one marked by life and joy and hope. Help us trust in that kingdom by trusting in its king. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.